Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How worried should we really be about kids and technology? With kids on devices more than ever due to virtual learning, we have to ask ourselves as parents, where is this all heading? And what can we actually do about it? Today, I speak with Anya Kabanitz, the author of The Art of Screen Time, Digital Parenting Without Fear. Anya is also an education correspondent for NPR, and her work can be found in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and New York Magazine. Specifically, we talk about the effects that screens can have on our children's eyes, sleep, stress levels, and shared family time. There remains a large gap in our knowledge about the impact that digital devices can have on our kids due to a lack of research. This is yet another problem when it comes to determining how to manage screen time with our kids. Parents are mostly reliant upon having conversations and sharing research such as Anya's with other parents. A critical takeaway from Anya's work and personal experience is to believe your eyes and trust your instincts when it comes to not only managing screen time, but our children's social interactions as well. Please enjoy my conversation with Anya Kamenetz. My guest on the podcast today is Anya Kamenetz. Anya is a correspondent with NPR and is focused on education. And literally, Anya has wrote the book when it comes to screen time with children. And that's a topic that many of you are extremely interested in, especially in this age of COVID and homeschooling and just trying to figure out how to balance all of this. So Anya, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I can't wait to dig into where this heads. Thanks for having me, Paul. So I actually first found you from the New York Times article that you wrote probably like back in the summer. And so you wrote the book, Screen Time, and we'll get into that as our conversation goes along. But what really interested me was the title of that article that you wrote, where here you are, the screen time expert, and now it's like, I don't know what to do now. So Mm -hmm. walk us through that article, if you will, and we'll link to it in our show notes and how that started. Because what I was drawn to was the openness that, okay, I am the expert and I'm still struggling with this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. I was really happy to see the impact that that had. And just, you know, when you really start sharing and being vulnerable, people respond to that. So my book, The Art of Screen Time was born out of my need as a mother of two to understand what it is exactly that screen time, technology use, media use of all kinds is doing to our children. And there are so many questions about it. There are a lot of anxieties that families feel around. We just see that our children, even our little tiny babies are so drawn to these little machines that we have in our house that we have in our hands all the time. And we're wondering, okay, what is it going to do to their brains? Is it going to cause addiction? Is it going to cause 
attention problems or emotional issues. And in the course of writing that book, what I really came to understand is that technology in the end is, it is a symbol of something. It's never usually something all by itself, but it really, what it is, is what role is it playing in your life? And so it's definitely possible, for example, for a child with autism spectrum disorder or with ADHD to have an unhealthy fixation on the machines, on the video games or on social media or anything like that. But it's not that the phone is the problem. It's really about what is your relationship to that object? Is it emotional comfort object? Is it something that you're turning to in a difficult moment to try to push your feelings away? And that's something I think that we can all relate to. Now, pre-COVID, I think that I and, and many other people in the parenting world were maybe a little bit guilty of overlooking all of the social and economic stresses that fall on families that make it hard to be your ideal self when it comes to things like setting limits on media time. And it was very easy for me to say as a parent who was relatively privileged and had access to high quality childcare that you should balance it out and you should be very good on bedtime and, and all of the things that I'm saying. And I still hold all those things to be true. But what happened, of course, when COVID came, we all were shut down. We lost access to all of these support networks and systems. And we were really just in our houses all day with our kids. And media became an invaluable and sort of inevitable lifeline, I think, for a lot of families. And it still remains that to this day. And so figuring out how to square that circle and come to a relationship with media that feels good to you as a family is something that we're still working out. And I think every family I know is still working out. I was going to go there because, and I'll take this quote from you that you wrote in the New York Times piece. And I want to take this moment to apologize to anyone who faced similar constraints before the pandemic and felt judged or shamed by my or anyone's implications that they thought weren't good parents because they weren't successfully enforcing a healthy balance with screens. Right. And my wife, Teresa, and I were the same way. We have the set of triplets that just turned 10 last week. And then our plus one, Mackenzie, that's eight. And it's a battle every day. And sometimes it's just easier to say, okay, here's the device, whether it's an Fire or an iPad or the Xbox or a PlayStation, where it's just, especially like when you're trying to work from home, and we still are, obviously, yeah. trying to balance that. And then on top of that, I think it was already a struggle before COVID. But then when you throw on the fact that now they're homeschooling and primarily doing Zoom or Google Classrooms, they're in front of that screen all day, every day, even longer periods of time. And that's, I think, a lot of where the concern from parents that I get asked about it, like, what do you do? And what do you do? And yeah. I don't think there's really any good answers. And that's the one nugget I took from your book as well, The Art of Screen Time, is that there's probably more that we don't know than what we do know. I think that's exactly right. I think that you can get educated about trouble signs or warning signs that might be sneaking up on you because they might not obviously be seem to be related to the screen. And so sleep is a really great example of that, especially with younger kids, because kids get into a cycle where they're overtired and then their body produces cortisol and it keeps them more awake. And the screen really in also increases the production of cortisol. A lot of the programming is very stimulating and it sort of 
that's that stress hormone. So it's something, it could be something exciting, something loud, something fast moving, and all of that is going to interfere with restful sleep. And you get a kid who says, I'm not tired, I'm not tired, and it's hard for them to wind down. And that just cascades into so many other areas because they're short-tempered, they can't pay attention. Then they're getting in a feedback loop with you where you're giving them consequences and it all really goes back to that sleep. So knowing that connection exists can help you hold the line when it seems easier to maybe not hold the line on bedtime. And that seems like bedtime's kind of old, old fashioned, especially now the kids don't necessarily have to get up in the same way at the same time, but just making sure that they get that good stretch of sleep, that they do have that wind down time, I think is one area that makes a lot of sense to pay attention to. And What we're really doing right now is we're firefighting. We are doing harm reduction. We're not creating perfection because this is not a perfect situation. And we're putting our kids in the same position that we as adults are in as professionals who the type of people who sit in front of a computer all day, which a broad swath of American workers are, we have these problems, right? We have issues with our posture. We have issues with um, with our sleep, our eye strain, And just feeling zoned out from being on Zoom calls all day, our kids are feeling that too. And so it's not about limiting it to a perfect, you know, we're not going to get down to an hour a day. That's not going to happen if they're going to Zoom school. But can you build in those stretch breaks? Can you build in the movement and the outdoor time, the dance parties, anything that breaks it up? And can you crucially try to encourage the unstructured time, which is never the thing that they're going to prefer? But if you give them a chance to get, because kids really need to build their executive functioning, their imaginations, and they need to do that through something where it's not a device telling them what to do next. And that's really important. That's another topic that you just touched on was the eye strain. Personally, I feel it every day being in front of my screen. It just, I just happen to be lucky. Like just before COVID hit, I was in the middle of redesigning my home office to where I went from a sitting desk to a standing desk. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that had saved me for the, through the, these last six months was being able to stand 80 to 90% of the time versus sitting 80, 90% of the time. But I feel, I still feel like this eye strain and I suffer from migraine. So I'm always really cognizant about my eyes. And ironically, I have my annual checkup this Saturday. And that's one of the things that I worry about with kids as well, because I know. Somewhere in the book, I made a note that optometrists have seen an increase in nearsightedness over the past several decades. Now, they can't necessarily tie it directly to screens or or what exactly it is, but can you provide any additional insight when it comes to eye strain and, and managing that when it comes to these screens? Sure. I mean, you know, optometrists will just tell you to take breaks every 20 minutes, spend at least 20 seconds looking at least 20 feet away. That's the thing where you can put it on a a post-it note near your computer and encourage your kids. This is another reason to do outdoor time. Like they need to be focusing, especially since their eyes are developing, they need to be focusing on faraway things and breaking it up. I mean, I think the eye strain along with the headaches comes from the tension of hunching over. And a lot of times bless them. Like our kids don't have chronic pain yet. So they're not hopefully that they don't notice as much their posture and they'll get crammed up into the most crazy postures. So we really have to be intentional about helping set up their space. If we have the resources for that, encouraging them to change positions. There's a lot of great, you know, you can buy classroom furniture and there's a lot of different kinds of furniture that 
are meant for kids who are fidgeting or moving around and help them get that excess energy out and also change positions, which is great. So we got my daughter like a, a fidget stool, a rubber stool that rocks and it's like $40 and it really helps her whole work set up. We actually, in our elementary school, I think over the last couple of years, because I'm on, involved with the PTA, is that there's been a lot of requests for those types of, of chairs yeah. that do that. It keeps a kid stimulated because having kids just sit for seven, eight hours a day isn't necessarily that great either. So I've heard that about having those breaks and making sure that you get those intertwined. And I'm more aware of that now as well, because before COVID, when my kids were playing games, I try to break it up, like not let them go on these binges, if you will, for like hours on end. And I know that it will get harder as they continue to get older. But if I can involve some kind of structure, obviously we'll be better off, you know, in the long run. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's hard because I know for parents, it's like one more thing you have to be vigilant about. But hopefully, depending on how old your kid is, it's also something that what I'm seeing with my daughter is she's able to take a lot of responsibility for herself in a way that I may not have thought of her as being capable of before as a fourth grader. And so build in those reminders and also have your kids also remind you because you need the same thing as well. If I come back to the kind of circle this all the way back to the beginning, how did you get involved in screen time? Now, I know you have young kids as well. Was that really the driving force behind trying to get answers with how to best handle screens and kids? So, Paul, I was an education reporter for many, many years, and I started out writing about students and student debt. And so that really got me on a journey of thinking about education from the learner's perspective, which is something that is not that common. I mean, most of the people writing about education are really coming from an educator background. And because of that, I was really drawn around the end of the 2010s, like 2008, 2009, to beginnings of a real interest in web-based education that was accessible and peer-to-peer and open resources And I really was immersed in the world of educational innovation. So I got really interested in educational technology. And that's what really led me to this discussion because I was so curious about, you know, that was really the beginning of the mobile revolution. And right away when the iPad came out, people were noticing that children had this affinity for this very small intuitive device, this hand, you know, the touch screen and the size of it. And so kids started to have this relationship with their mobile devices and mobile internet brought us everywhere. So the other thing that happened with that was that we used to have had the TV in the family room and that was something that people gathered around like a hearth and we're having a shared common experience with the mobile devices. Everyone in the family can have their own device and their own experience. And so researchers are super curious about what that means because It's something where there may be very positive benefits to it. Right away, there were people experimenting and saying, could you drop this out of a helicopter into a village in the mountains of Ethiopia and have a child learn to read without any teachers, without any schools? And then on the other hand, people are saying, well, this is really terrible because there's babies in strollers and they're staring at the iPad and they're not learning to read faces because they're just learning what Elmo says. So those two really strong poles of the dichotomy were what led me to really get curious about how how this was unfolding. That is a really interesting point you just made. And I just think about our own family structure where it is harder to pull all six of us together, even to watch a family movie, because 
they can all go to disparate places within our house and pick up a device, whether it's mom's iPhone or iPad or whatever. That, that just actually sunk really quick into me. I'm like, maybe it, it's really hard to bring everybody to, together like that. And I think it goes back to how do you structure that screen time versus family time versus that unorganized play, like just go outside and play because every generation is different. And obviously we didn't have these devices when we were growing up and, you know, and I grew up in the country. So it's like, you just went out and played with whatever you could find basically. Whereas growing up in a suburban area where we live, we're surrounded by younger kids. And so it's interesting to see how that develops with each of my kids. Cause you know, that's one thing with triplets or twins or whatever, like, well, aren't they all the same? Like, no, <laughs> they're individual people. And it's, it's interesting to see how one will go out and try to do their own. Another will like more gravitate towards like the device. And then the other two are more social butterflies. So, and I can see yours in the background. <laughs> So one of the more surprising recommendations in my book, The Art of Screen Time, is for co-viewing to happen as much as possible. And co-engagement. I mean, that could be playing video games with your kids as well as watching something together, trading off watching TikToks. And the reason for that is that we value media for how it connects us. And the kinds of conversations that go on between parents and children or even between children themselves about what are you watching? How, what's going on? How does it make you feel? Why do you think that character did that? What is happening here? Is there some kind of concept we can talk about? Those are all really powerful and important and they're positive things, just like when you're reading a book. It's one thing to have a robot read your child a book and you can have Alexa read a story if you want to. And that's, that's not bad. It's fine. They're listening and they're getting language. But when you have what's called dialogic reading, which is the kid is in your lap and you're looking at the pictures. Oh, that's a dog. What does a dog say? You know, oh, remember when we were in a snowstorm and it makes you think of something else. So that's when that really powerful kind of development goes on. It's an emotional thing and it's an intellectual thing that happens. And you can do that with a movie too. You can do it with a piece of media, but you have to be together. You have to be co-viewing. The other really important reason to have that shared family media time is mediation. So we worry about the messages our kids are getting about violence, about gender roles, stereotypes, just different kinds of values. And we cannot control everything our kids are going to see or hear, definitely not as they get older. But when we watch with them or when we know what they're seeing and we have a conversation about it, our words and our views are very powerful and they get into their heads. That's how we want it to be, right? We want them to be thinking about well, gosh, I mean, why is it that She-Ra wears a little tiny short skirt where this other male superhero is wearing like a comfortable outfit, right? <laughs> and have them kind of be able to reframe in their heads so that everything doesn't just go in their ears and in their eyes and shape their minds without us having a chance to put our own values in the mix as well. And it's ironic that you bring that up because just the other night I tried this because it's been a struggle with, we try to have this rule where the kids have to read for 30 minutes each night before they go to bed. And ironically, I'm sitting in a room like 20 feet from them on my iPad reading and expecting them to read on their own when I'm like, well, I'm just going to try this. I must have picked it up from your book because I've been reading it thoroughly the last few weeks before this call. And I went in and I just laid in bed with my two boys 
and they read their book and I read my book and it was peaceful. There was no yelling. I think that's the point you're trying to make with this shared family time, correct? That's exactly right. And that's the habits that you're putting in as well, where you say they're going to do what you say, but they're really going to do what you do. Yeah. And just the opposite happened last night. And I thought about this as well, because we didn't read. It was the the season finale of The Amazing Race. Uh-huh. And so we watched that for like an hour before we went to bed. And that can be a pretty intense show and pretty competitive. And so 30 minutes after the show's over, we stopped watching it. It's like 930 at night and they're still bouncing off the walls. And Teresa's like, aren't you going to get them to bed? I'm like, I'm trying, but they just watched the very stimulating show for an hour and they need to calm down. And there's nothing that neither one of us are going to do. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. And I think that's, there's a place for that in your family life. It's just understanding the effect that it's going to have and building in that response time. And I think that's important also for parents who are using screen time to get themselves time to work or time to do the things that they need to do. You just need to know that if you give them three hours, you don't get three hours. You have the three hours and then you have your time to reintegrate them and help them deal with their emotional hangover effect. So it cuts back into the time that you gave them. If you see what I mean, right? You get maybe three hours of peace and then an hour of very unpleasantness. And you might decide, okay, I'd rather have two hours and then there's no unpleasantness because they can handle that a little bit better with a limitation. For those of us parents that feel like they're just absolutely failing with this and, and managing it, how do you talk to parents about that to, I guess, for lack of a better term, like not beat ourselves up? I, I've kind of, we've kind of touched on it, but that's, I think, the one thing that we all struggle with is that we have our good moments and our bad moments. And it seems like, at least personally for me, being a little bit vulnerable, like when I have a bad moment, usually I'm like screaming at my kids. Mm-hmm. And I've had Dr. Laura Hutchinson on, who's a child psychologist. And obviously, like, that is not the thing that you want to be doing. But in the heat of the moment, it's tough. Yeah, I feel you. And we've all been there. I've definitely been there. I think what I've learned from the amazing mental health professionals that I've spoken with is to say a great mom and a great dad is not one that never yells. A great mom or dad is one that can come and say, I'm sorry, and really honestly, vulnerably apologize and repair that, that experience, that rift. Now, because that's what our kids need. They don't need someone who's perfect, who's calm, like a robot 24 seven. It's okay to experience emotions, especially when they're seeing the consequences of something. That's a real thing in a relationship. Sometimes something will happen and people will get upset, but they need to understand, okay, we can fix this. We're going to do something better, make a different choice next time. So that's one part. The other part I would say is that you recognize that this is systemic. So we don't have a childcare system in this country. We didn't have one before COVID, not a real one, not real subsidies that would help people get high quality care that they could feel good about leaving their kids with. And so we're putting way too much on parents. We don't have also a lot of the extended family kinship networks in a lot of places. Not every intergenerational family is able to help. So a lot of parents are really on their own right now. And especially with COVID, that was obviously hugely multiplied and made a lot more visible. And so we're being asked to do too much. That's just the reality of it. And so people break down when they're being asked to do too much and understanding that this isn't just me and I'm not the one who caused this problem, but this is really something that's happening across the country, I think can sometimes be helpful. I want to pivot back to the book again. And one of the interesting personally questions that I wanted to ask and treat with, and actually another family 
that knew I was going to have you on wanted me to ask as well because they dabble in writing on the side is what was it like putting together the book? Because you you had so many resources and a lot of deep research. Walk us through what that process was like. Like, how did you find the experts? Like, how did that work? That to me, that's just fascinating. Oh my gosh, Paul. I mean, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit because I'm actually working on a new book now about children and COVID and it is such an overwhelming process, but I always have research assistants that I work with. You know, I have a lot of spreadsheets. I do library research and I talk to, I mean, the, one of the greatest things is scholars are so generous when you call them up and you ask them to explain their work. And so many of the scholars that I talked to were also parents and they shared their own experiences at the same time. And so you get people that are experts in a field and then they recommend other people to you. And then after you do that three or four times, you start hearing the same names again and you're like, okay, I captured this part. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's all I can really say about it. <laughs> that's the work. Is it a lot of conversations with experts or scholars, academia, or, or is it like emails back and forth or a lot of the above? It's a lot of all of that. So I did, I mean, I did probably 150 or 200 interviews for the book. That's how I like to do it because you can, I mean, you can definitely get a lot out of an academic paper, but if you call someone up and have them explain it to you in layman's terms so that you're not misinterpreting it, you get so much more. And then they probably also can tell you the things that didn't make it into the paper that they're still curious about. And so that's where I really get a lot out of it. And then they'll tell you in that field, in whatever, whether it's developmental psychology or whether it's just media research or whether it's in the technology field, they know their colleagues and they know who's good and who, who to talk to next. Yeah. For anybody that's ever tried to read like an academic paper, and I tend to read some of those often within the field of finance, they can be very overwhelming to read. And it's like almost another language. So I think that's where people like you and your book are able to break it down. And I would say, call it a plainer English that people can understand and and more easily digest. And I think that's one of the great highlights of your book and the work that you've done so far. So I'm, I'm excited about your new book. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. That's my passion is translating academia and scholarship into something that is usable. And, you know, the people who do this stuff are very excited about that. They really, I mean, they are out there doing the work and they definitely need people to kind of carry it the last 50 feet (laughs) to get people to understand it. That was actually one of my questions. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but with a lot of the experts that you talk to, whether they're at a college or university or maybe a private foundation, like where do they get the funding to do the research that they do? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, because actually the last, as I mentioned in the book, the last major federally funded piece of research on children and media was in 1982. It was a study on television. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a real lack of research in this area, funded research. And you could speculate as to why. I think there's an underfunding of pure research in general, but especially now with the incredible proliferation of these technology companies into our daily lives, you could definitely argue that there's room for a lot more research into the the effects. There is a bigger study going on right now called the ABCD study, which is really collecting a huge amount of data on young people, everything from like brain scans to behavioral information to school records. They are coming out with some interesting information about media and the brain, but it's going to be several years before there's anything definitive. Okay. So 
if we come back to the screen time, one of the the things I was kind of picking up from the book as well is this whole notion of violence, if you will. And I think that's another concern that parents have, especially when it comes to gaming. You know, right now within my family, and I know a lot of the families that we're friends with, Roblox is really big, obviously Minecraft, but then you can get into some really dicey games like, uh, and now I'm going to lose the one I was thinking of, Call of Duty. Yeah. Perfect. Call of Duty, like these really violent, basically kill games. And what's ironic is that, you know, some of these esports are becoming so much bigger and actually colleges are making them sports where you can get a scholarship to go play video games. And so talk about the what you found like with correlation between the violence like with video games and, and that impact on on our kids. Yeah, I mean the effect of graphic violence has been of concern to researchers going all the way back to the 1950s in television. And there's some interesting research from those days that you couldn't do today that involves children kind of imitating what they see on the screen and doing more violent things after they watch violence. The media research is inconclusive, even though there's a lot of it. One thing that we can say for sure is that these kinds of content are arousing to the body, right? So they make your heart race and they, again, have the cortisol, the adrenaline, you are, you're getting affected. And so then the question is, what do you do with that stimulation, right? Because you're sitting there, you're kind of clicking buttons. That's not allowing your body to complete the stress cycle and process those feelings, those hormones. So that will be manifested in a lot of different ways. There are definitely kids that will rage and have tantrums or even get violent. Even with teenage boys get violent if the screen's taken away and they suddenly that that's yanked away the stimulus and they're still having these, these, there's these hormones in their body. Essentially there are kids that will withdraw and there are kids that will feel desensitized. So they will be numb to the effect of even really graphic violence. It also causes anxiety when you have stress hormones in your body and you don't have an obvious reason for them. There's no real life reason why your body's flooded with these hormones then you fixate on things that are happening in your life as a reason, right? Because we have a fight or flight instincts as humans. And like when there's no bear, you start wondering about what I have, the thing I have to do at school tomorrow or, you know, some person that I'm worried about. And those hormones get transferred into this anxiety, right? Anxiety is kind of an unfounded fear or emotion that's not really, that's over, it's not well matched with the actual thing that's happening. The thing that's happening is not that big a deal, but you feeling like it's a really big deal. So those are the kinds of strange things to watch out for. You wouldn't, you wouldn't automatically assume that Call of Duty is going to make a kid anxious and they might not be able to verbalize to you, dad, I feel anxious, but you might see it in being avoidant or not wanting to do the things that they normally enjoy doing. And the Call of Duty could be the cause. And then it becomes a cycle because maybe they're avoiding something that feels challenging and they go back to the video game because it feels familiar to them. So how do we break that cycle? I mean, you have to think about being aware of it, talking about it can help. And again, kind of balancing it out, but balancing it out with activities in particular that complete the stress cycle. And really what that means is just like intensive physical activity, throwing baskets, push-ups, running around, things that kind of blow off that steam in a healthy way that make your body feel good. And then that can help get rid of those kinds of feelings that build up when you are playing a really violent game. 
let me get to it here. There, because there's a piece in the book that I really wanted to, to highlight as well, where we as parents, and now I'm not going to be able to find it, but we as parents have more influence over our kids' decisions than we actually probably believe. And I found that really interesting because getting back to this spending time with kids can help rather than lead them to playing Call of Duty, it's playing Roblox or Minecraft in these worlds that they're building. Just sitting, and I know sitting with them and playing the games is actually a way to, to have that shared family time. Is that a good way to integrate these screens into our lives and make it more healthy and being able to direct them all? Hey, I think we should be playing even Madden football or soccer, FIFA. I know my kids love to play that or golf versus that World War II game. Absolutely. If you're playing it with them and as long as they're, you know, it's still at the age where they like spending time with you, which is you get for, you know, a certain number of years, <laughs> I think it's a real, it's a real boon. I mean, you don't have to be a gamer to encourage in a positive way, your kid's media interests. You just have to be interested in your kid. And a lot of people feel like we have a good paradigm for what it means to be a soccer mom or a soccer dad, but we don't have a good paradigm for what it means to be a Minecraft mom. And it doesn't have to mean that you're on the field with them playing. It could mean you're talking about it with them. What was your biggest moment? Like what was exciting about it? What are you learning to do now? Or what are you curious to do next? And making them snacks and like making sure that they get to play with their friends. I mean, I'm right now in in lockdown, I am a, a big fan of my kids playing games when they're able to be with their friends at the same time. And that's kind of the condition that I said, I don't really like them playing video games just on their own. And so then it's kind of like, I've got the play date. And if there's too much trash talking, I'm hearing it and I'm able to like intervene um, and say like, are you actually upset about this? Or is it just something you guys are making fun of each other? Like, let's, can we figure this out? And so that's hopefully my, I try to make sure that my messages to them about their media are not all negative. You can't always be the person who's trying to shut it down or really just like sneering at it. Like it's so easy, I think, for parents to be like, are you still on that thing? Why don't you get outside? And ultimately, we're not going to get their ear as much as if we've been like, hey, I think it's really cool that you built that thing, but you know, now it's time to do something else. I think that was actually, you're leading into my next question or piece I wanted to pull from the book was by building those relationships now, when they hit the teen years and they're not in your house as much as they used to be, you have that level of trust and don't necessarily... And I know I have it highlighted here in all my notes I'm trying to look through was that you have that sense of trust where you're not having to Facebook stalk them or give me your phone so I could see what activity you've been doing. You've put in that work over the years to build that level of trust where they know, for lack of a better term, right from wrong, you're still going to worry. At least I know oh, sure. I'm going to worry and I'm, <laughs> I know my wife, Teresa, is going to worry. But you planted that seed. And you don't have to go to those extremes because to your point, when you do, it doesn't resonate and it could potentially push them further away. You know, and I don't want to, again, I'm not here to lay blame on any parent. I think that we're, a lot of us are just repeating the messages that we hear from our own parents or from media. And it's in a reflex. We're always told as parents that our job is to limit and monitor our kids' media use. And what I'm just coming in here to say is that we're there to moderate and to mediate their use. We're not there just to say no. So 
when you look at the research that you've done and I come back to, and then I think you actually use this phrase really early on in, in the book is how worried should we really be about kids in tech? You know, where's all this heading? So in all the research that you've done, both with this book and the book you're currently working on, the New York Times piece and all the other articles you've, you've written, how do we synthesize all this? How do we bring it all back together? Like how worried should we be? So I think that what I really want to get parents to do is believe their eyes and trust their instincts. Media is very powerful, but it's seldom creating huge problems all by itself. You really need to take a step back and say, how's my kid eating? How's my kid sleeping? How's my kid doing with school? How are they doing with their family members, with their friends? How are they relating to other people? What are their interests? What gets them out of bed in the morning? Are they usually in a good mood or a bad mood? And have there been changes recently? And you take that kind of holistic picture and then you kind of say, okay, I'm seeing red flags here or there. And is that something that media use could be a part of or could be playing into a dynamic that we think is not so positive? Is it something that they're turning to kind of all the time or something they seem a little obsessed with that they're unable to be kind or calm when it has to do with how much media they're getting? And so we have the ability as parents to understand if something is not right with our kids. And I think we have the ability to interfere, intervene with it. We just have to empower ourselves to do that. There's nothing mysterious about these impacts, truly, about media use. I mean, there are a lot of things that remain to be studied, but the fact is we understand the mental health of kids pretty well, and we understand how to improve it. And sometimes reducing or restricting media use as part of other behavior plans and interventions can be a really good way to go about it. But it doesn't mean that there's inherently something wrong every time a kid picks up a machine. I found the piece in the book that I highlighted as well. I think that goes along with this. And it's from Dan Romer, who's a director of Adolescence Communications Institute at the Annenberg Public Policy Center at University of Penn. You quote him as saying, if there's a digital revolution, it's not bending the trajectory downward sufficiently enough to start worrying. And you said, I am indebted to him for this line of reasoning because he spends a lot of time thinking about our kids. And he suggests that we're all to some extent victims of the fact that doom and gloom gets clicks and eyeballs. Right. Media quote, which is reasonable because if there are harms, we should know about them. But those negative reports tend to drown out the overall pattern. And I think that kind of sums up what you were just talking about, where- Go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have to understand and we have to be, this is part of being critical consumers of media ourselves, that media that goes to parents a lot of times is playing on our anxieties and making us feel inadequate. And frankly, making us look at ourselves as the problem rather than these bigger issues in our society that are really the the root of why a lot of families are not doing well right now. The mental health issues that are emerging in families and kids right now, a huge reason for that is that there are a lot of kids that are hungry, that don't have sufficient food assistance. There are a lot of parents that are stressed out and worried because their business has had to close or the revenue is down. And that gets transferred onto our kids. And it's so much bigger as a factor than the video games that they're playing. I think if I could synthesize what you just kind of explained in all of this is that it's not necessarily the device 
or the game that we should necessarily be worried about. Yes, there are times where that is a factor, but the bigger factor is in simple terms is the is the family structure. Because I can tell when I'm stressed and when my kids are picking up off of that stressed stress and, and vice versa. Like I know like when especially my daughter, when she hasn't had anything to eat, she can she can get hangry if you if, if that's the right terminology. So and I know that you know a lot of that in the book as well. We've already talked about sleep, physical activity, hunger that you just mentioned, and then just the stresses of some of the constraints that COVID have put on people as far as losing businesses and just that structure that used to be there is no longer there. And I know growing up with the set of triplets, we thrived on structure. Like the first four years when we had a very strong structured base, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was easier than the two years that followed after that, where we kind of lost our structure. And we, Teresa and I needed to make some family changes and which resulted in me starting Tama and the firm full time, which allowed me to be home more. And so we got our mojo back, if you will. I think that's the point you're trying to drive home is in this conversation and your writing in your book is that, yeah, we need to be cognizant of screens and what, what our kids are watching, but there's something bigger than that. That's exactly right. I mean, and zoom out, if you will, (laughs) and sort of look at the bigger picture. And I think that's really admirable that you were able to be creative and make those changes. Because I think what I'm seeing in the research now is a lot of the stress from COVID is happening because families are in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you don't make, you're not thinking big picture and you're not thinking, what are the structural changes that I could make? Maybe it's getting up half an hour earlier, or maybe it's getting my husband to do a little bit more, or maybe it's not having to cook a whole meal every night and doing a little more convenience food or takeout, whatever it is where you can find those areas that you can move a little on. And the other really important corollary, and I hope that parents hear this, is that you have to be in good working order mentally, emotionally, in order to give your kids what they need. And if that means that you let them watch cartoons so you can sleep a little more, that's the right thing to do for your kids. because if you are more on point and you are more focused and you're happier because you had that moment to yourself to do a little workout or meditate or whatever it is, that's going to ultimately benefit them far more than the little extra screen time is going to hurt them. Yeah. The self-care. And that's something that again, in episode two with Dr. Laura Hutchinson, that I had a conversation with is so critical. And I think you probably referenced it in your book. I mean, it gets referenced all the time that that whole fact of being on a plane, you put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then on your kids, because if you're no good, how are your kids going to be any good? You know, we say it all the time, but I think it's just really hard to believe it. And a lot of times it's it's just, it, this is such an extreme situation, but it, it's something that it's just a variation of what we we often feel, which is we have to protect our kids at all costs, but that means you have to take care of yourself. So as far as, obviously, I highly recommend The Art of Screen Time for everybody. And I've actually bought a few copies and I'm going to send it out to a few of my family members or client families. But as far as you know, resources that parents can turn to, where are some places that you would recommend them going? Well, I do recommend Common Sense Media. They have a really good up-to-date research and they have reviews of almost any video game or movie or TV show that your kid might pick up. So they're able to kind of look at ratings and see what is or isn't appropriate. So I find that to be a really helpful resource. 
If you're looking for mental health resources, I am going to put in a plug for crisis text line 741741 because there are a lot of families that are really struggling right now. And, you know, you can find referrals to different kinds of help um, and just don't let it go another day if you, if you find that you really need help. Okay. So I know I could have you here for a whole nother hour, but I have to be respectful of your time. And I know you've got a little girl probably behind you needing some help as well. So my closing question that I ask everyone is, what is the best thing about being a parent? And I know that you share some vulnerability in your book about having kids and and how challenging it was. And I shared some of the same struggles with having our kids as far as fertility and going down that road and very difficult, both from my side and my wife's side. And it was a struggle, but we're here today. So what is the best thing about being a parent for you? Oh my gosh. Family hugs with all four of us is the best thing. And from what I've been told, you need eight hugs a day. So you're a family <laughs> of four. So that's four times eight is 32, right? Uh, yeah. And so I'm a family of six. So I need 48. And <laughs> I know I know it never come close to that number. <laughs> I love it. Well, Anya, I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. I know that our audience is going to get a great deal of information from this, and we'll have a link to the New York Times article, the other resources you mentioned, and also your book as well. I can't highly recommend it. So we'll definitely look forward to this next book that you're working on and see where things go. Okay. Thanks, Paul. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.